0: So and forty days of faith is usually my favorite time of the you know, here I mean, there's all the good times, but this is one of my favorite times. Um, because we're all like kind of coming together as a community. We're praying together, we're pursuing God in some intentional way together. And um and this forty days of faith is what um this season in my opinion is usually ripe for transformation in people's lives. People are ready to do something, to see something change. Um, And it's also a very vulnerable time because people, if you've chosen to fast, you've given up one of your creature comforts, you know, like coffee or sweets or alcohol or, you know, social media. I mean, for me, I've cautiously, I say cautiously because I don't know if I'll make it, but I decided to give up television during the work week. I know, that's going to be hard because I'm a self-diagnosed TV junkie. Like, (laughs) but like Charles said last week, um, above just asking for a miracle this season, we have decided to also focus on character change as well. So that's why our sermon series this 40 days is called I Want to Be Better At dot, dot, dot. Asking God for anything is especially and I mean, it's especially scary. But if it's something that you really feel like is missing from your life, I feel like that's even more vulnerable because even though I think we all know that God is good, I mean, you know, they say God is good, so we hear God is good, but I feel like sometimes God's goodness takes a, it's hard for us to really feel it viscerally, for us to really trust that God is good. So for me, this season, I've decided to pray for my love life. And I know as a single person, I kind of feel like it's like a cliche ask because everybody's like, oh, single people all want to be married. No, not necessarily. But, you know, I mean, but me saying that makes me a little nervous even sharing it with you guys because I have prayed about this before. I mean, people who know me in my life group knows we've prayed about this before. <laughs> um, and I think that um, I am at that place as a single adult woman where people still believe there's quote unquote hope for me, you know. I haven't reached that point where people stop, (laughs) you know, um, but since my relationship history hasn't really pointed to any one significant relationship, I feel like when people talk to me about it, you can tell there's a little bit of like, you know, blame, like, oh, you did something wrong. That's why you haven't found someone yet or whatever. Anyway, but last year I shared publicly about my personal history with sexual abuse here with a number of different people um, through my childhood, adolescence, and then early adulthood. And to this day, I sometimes feel like that story is kind of like always in the background of my life, like haunting me in a way, kind of keeping me from being able to trust my own judgment with people or, you know, wondering what are their motivations in being here, right? (sighs) And so this kind of scares me going into this. I think I probably could be bolder with my prayer request. I think I probably could put a time limit on it and be like, you know, say, God, I want to meet the love right by the end of the year or something. But I feel like that, too, would scare me because a part of me thinks, like, what if I'm not really ready for what it is that I'm wanting or the other part of me is like, well, what if God is asking me to, like, take a greater leap of faith and, like, exercise my power and my authority and partner with God and create the life that I want, right? What if God is asking me to do that? I don't know. God hasn't been clear. But <laughs> I um, But my, I also feel like my heart couldn't handle any more disappointment because those of us who are single in the room, y'all know dating in 2020 is no joke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, social media, you have dating apps, you can swipe right or swipe left, you can take, have a, hire a matchmaker, or maybe you go to singles mixers, or you do speed dating, or, or you decide to cross that mix of mixing your worlds up and meeting someone at the gym, mm, or meeting someone at work, mm, or even trying to meet someone at church, mm, like, no, like, <laughs> so the field is overwhelming right (laughs) so it's it's, it's not like anybody has ever gone through this before like we're chartering new new ground new new ground (laughs) and the carefree side of me the side of me that hopes and dreams that the best Melinda who has watched pretty much every season of bachelor bachelorette since 2003 that side of me tends to believe like yeah I can find my love (sighs) (laughs) but then you have the other side of me that's like well what if this isn't what God really has for me I mean you know at this point because I also don't personally believe that committed partnership is the next developmental milestone for every single living adult on earth okay okay (laughs) and thanks to the women's movement like you know it doesn't have to be at least not in this country right so but I hold these tensions lightly and I kind of I believe that God wants to give me what the desires of my heart, so I decided I'm gonna go for it. I'll pray again. So, I'm praying for my love this season. I am not praying to meet him. <laughs> I'm praying for him because I kind of want to protect myself from any confirmation bias. You know that idea of like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail? I don't want to be like, oh, every guy that comes up, oh, maybe that's him. No. We're not doing that, we've done that before, been there, done that, no. I'm going to pray for him. I'll pray for his work, I'll pray for his life, I'll pray for his family. I'm just going to pray for whatever comes to mind, knowing full well that I can't control how God's going to bring God's goodness into my life. And so this request is related to where I think I need to see my character change as well. I want to get better at dealing with rejection. I think improving how I deal with rejection will not only improve the quality of my relationships with both men and women. Honestly, I, but I think it'll allow me to keep my heart soft when I do inevitably face rejection. Because we all know a part of developing intimacy is risking rejection. And I think if I, if I don't learn how to handle this better, in a way that doesn't keep me have me like clam up or like you know have my heart become hardened and whatever the situation is, I'm going to miss out on life. I know I will if I don't work on this. Because rejection for me taps into a very dark place in me. And it's one that I've just begun to uncover. So bear with me. But somehow I learned that I don't like myself. (laughs) Okay, like there's some self-loathing and some self-disgust under there where I believe that I'm bad for whatever reason. I'm disgusting. Um, And sadly, some of that disgust ends up being projected out on people when I feel like they don't like me. Even though I might really like them, but like, you know, if they don't like me, then I'm like, oh, that disgust that I feel for myself ends up being thrown out on them. And then the opposite also then holds. So if someone seems to accept me, just like the little bit of me, not even all of me, just like, you know, slither of Melinda. Um, for some reason, I end up feeling really indebted to them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they like me? Wow, they like little little disgusting me. Like, <laughs> which is very twisted and very dangerous, mind you. Very dangerous. Um, because the superficial acceptance sometimes leads to me doing really stupid things all in the name of love. One of my personal challenges in the world of dating has been identifying the creeps from the good people, the good men, because there's good men out there. I believe that there are. I mean, we have some of them here. <laughs> and my struggle with rejection and true acceptance have contributed to that, unfortunately. Last year was a really big year for me. I, had, I made a lot of progress. I saw myself do great things, things that I had dreamed of. I made a lot of steps forward. And then I found myself the target of a romance scam. Yeah, I know. I'm not like an old lady that you would think, like, you know. Yeah, me. <laughs> I met this man, um, believed he loved me, let him into my life, led him into my family, only to find out that all he wanted from me was my money. He was able to latch on to that weakness and exploit it. And I was so angry. I was devastated. I felt even more disgusting. It was like terrible things layered on top of each other. It felt like the biggest setback I had experienced in a really long time. But God is faithful. And as I've been recovering, I feel like God has been inviting me into something more. God has been speaking to me about her fidelity to transform my wounds through some of the most unexpected places. One of them has been the book of Isaiah. So multiple people have been, like, sending me passages from that book to pray for me, praying Isaiah over me. And as some of you know, um, I'm living with a brain tumor. So, like, they've been praying the parts about being healed. And then a couple weeks ago, Peter Evis was sharing, and Peter was like, Isaiah is about God's commitment to his people. And I'm like, hmm, okay. Um, (laughs) and And so I'm like, well, maybe I should dig into this more. Um, So I'm like, what does this old story in the Bible, I mean, the Old Testament, mind you, about the nation of Israel and this prophet Isaiah have to offer me in my situation in the 21st century? Why was this popping up for me? So I'm going to share some of why, and hopefully it might help some of you too. So the Old Testament, first of all, is a collection of stories of how people of faith understood their relationship with God, and how they processed that relationship, how they pursued it within their particular context. And yes, we don't live in ancient times. We don't. But I think that these stories are able to reveal some truths about how human beings understand and interact with the divine. And while, again, we're not in ancient times, but also I think the relational dynamics that we experience with God in our life of faith are similar to what you might see some people experiencing in the Old Testament. So please bear with me, because Isaiah is a very heavy book. So here we go. Okay? So Isaiah is among who is often referred to as the major prophets in the Bible. Um, he's considered a quote-unquote true prophet, because a lot of what he prophesied actually came true in his lifetime. <clears throat> because not all the prophets in the Bible had that experience. And if you ever open the book, it's massive. I think it's like 60 chapters deep or something. And... um, <clears throat> It's this very interesting combination of like prose and poetry that makes it really hard to follow, in my opinion. And then you have like past, present, and future all mixed together. It kind of all feels like a dream. Like, there's a lot of images and visions all plopped next to each other, and you're like, what? Like, it's very confusing. But it's also, if you take some time, it's, it could be really beautiful. So um, I'm going to summarize some of my takeaways for you. So Isaiah, he was tasked with prophesying God's judgment and God's hope over the nation of Israel. But his prophecy was that God's judgment would come to them because of what he referred to as their rebellion against God, how they treated the poor or their idolatry. And this judgment would come in the form of Israel losing everything they had. They would lose their homeland, end up in exile. Very harsh, very harsh. But he also simultaneously prophesied hope to them through a servant king who he called Emmanuel, who would come in to usher a new kingdom. At the start of the book, in chapter 6, I'm not going to, you don't have it in your program, I'm just going to tell you what happened there um isaiah shares the initial prophecy of judgment over the people with this very devastating picture it's like he's warning them about their impending quote-unquote doom it feels like they're going to lose their whole land the entire nation's going to be wiped away all you're going to have left is like a tree stump that's kind of what he says and that is there in conjunction with this very lofty visual uh, where Isaiah shares a picture of God, like high and exalted, seated on the throne with the long, beautiful robe that fills the temple. And then there's angels and seraphims sh- shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So you have these two very contrasting images. You have one speaking of holiness, majesty, and celebration and then you have devastation and ruin right there at the beginning then the story reaches a pivotal point in chapter 39 so the nation of israel they're trying to process what isaiah said i don't know it's hard to figure out what he was trying to say but you know they're very small they're insecure they have all these major world powers around them like syria babylon persia And King Hezekiah, who was Israel's king at the time, he doesn't really understand, or maybe he didn't listen to Isaiah's warning from the beginning of the book, and he does something stupid. I think it was stupid, and I think Isaiah thought it was stupid too, but I'll tell you what he did. He basically let the Babylonian envoys come into the land, and he showed them everything he had. Like He he went there, and it says he showed them silver, gold, spices, fine olive oil, At all of his treasures. And the Bible says there was nothing that Hezekiah did not show them. So imagine, like, you're a small nation. Would you invite your big nation next door to come see everything you have? (laughs) But Hezekiah thought he was doing a good thing. He thought he was going to bring peace to the nation between Israel and Babylon. Now, Isaiah finds out about this. Isaiah is like livid, comes to Hezekiah, and was like, you're stupid. (laughs) But then, again, Isaiah warns him again, then now tells him about the exile and how they're going to lose everything. And he specifies that the country, saying that Hezekiah's children and all of his stuff that he just showed them is going to be taken into Babylon. Hezekiah hears this and interprets it, oh, okay, if we're going to be taken into Babylon, we're going to be at peace. No, that's not what Isaiah was trying to say. These are the people that are going to take you. Right? <laughs> like, okay. <clears throat> so... Basically, the point, I'm going to just rewind so y'all can follow me. Isaiah tells the people that they're going to be judged. There's a rebellion. You should, you're going to be judged by God. You're going to lose everything. But then the king tries to figure it out. Tries to figure it out. He does the best he can out of his, his insecurity. He foolishly opens the gates, shows everything he has to the nation who ends up taking them to exile. But with every message that Isaiah gives them, Isaiah always gives them a message of hope. And so the first portion of this message that I feel is about reminding them and reminding us about God's love and compassion for his people is in Isaiah 40one through 5, which y'all have, and it's going to be projected onto the screen. I'll read it for you guys. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her heart service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So you would think that God had abandoned them at this point because they're in exile now. And I think they kind of felt that way to the people of Israel. All their riches had been taken from them. But that's not what God is saying here. God is not like, I told you so. No. Isaiah says that that the Lord says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. It's it's done, he's telling them. Don't worry about what you did wrong. It's done. And God is like reassuring them and of the promise of his hope. And then he says, the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. That is a foreshadowing of John the Baptist, if you if you know the story in the New Testament, of him being in the desert and preparing the way for Jesus. And as if this wasn't enough of a reminder of hope, I think it's a great reminder of hope. But God was not like, oh, he understood that they were still like downtrodden, felt forgotten, felt like God had forgotten about them. So God was like, well, let let me remind you again. And so you have verse 27 to 31 of the same chapter further down where Isaiah says this to them. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen. I think this is my biggest part of being in awe of how God is with these people, how persistent God is in reminding them of the fact that all is not lost for them. To me, that's incredible. God had every reason to be like, I told you so, because he did tell them so, but no, no. <laughs> With every message of judgment, there's a message of hope over and over again. God is relentless about hope. It's it's as if God, like, I imagine, it's, it's as if God is saying it like this. Like, you think all is lost? I love you. No, you didn't hear me. You think all is lost? I love you. No, no, maybe I'll tell you one other way, so maybe you can hear it in this way. I love you. And I think that's the reminder for us, too. Today, as we pursue character change as a community, like Charles said last week, character change is only good for us. God is all good. God doesn't need us to do anything for him, for his benefit. It only helps us to to be able to gain whatever the functional benefits are that we've identified in our lives if we decide to change. For me, dealing with rejection, I think, will help me better able to learn when someone is actually accepting me. And continue to learn my worth and my value in God. And learn who is truly invested in me and who is just looking for what they can get from me. And I think the temptation when we're looking at our character issues and flaws is to judge ourselves really harshly. When we see ourselves do that one stupid thing that we always know we do again. I like, I thought I learned the last time. Oh, no, I thought I made a plan this time. <laughs> then you fall again. So my first... Practical suggestion for you all is, and for me, is to be kind. It's a simple one, but it's a powerful one. Be kind. The words that Isaiah says to the people is, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This, to me, is a picture of God's mercy and kindness and compassion towards us. Comfort and tenderness are God's tools to loosen the grip of whatever is triggering your shortcomings. Last year when I was scammed, I spent many weeks, or could have been a month, Like beating myself up about it and letting other people beat me too, because I was like, yeah, I made a mistake. But I think the part that was the hardest part for me to get over was the fact that, because you guys know at the river we talk about conversational prayer and listening, you know, prayer and trying to hear from God. And so God had been telling me, was warning me about something, but I wasn't really sure what I was being warned about. And so I got it wrong. And so that was really hard for me to acknowledge, like, oh, I heard God wrong. I didn't understand God the white way. But I think we don't always understand God, so it's okay. But I think the part that for me I appreciated from God was that God reminded me when I was, like, about to be, like, crying every moment to be kind and compassionate to myself. My inability to, you know, identify true acceptance, it didn't come out of nowhere. And none of us developed our, our character flaws out of nowhere. So beating them out of us is not going to make them go away. But for me, accepting myself looks like owning my whole story, my shortcomings, and not wishing them away or wishing my story away. Recognizing what I bring and how that could impact my pursuit for a healthier approach to dealing with feelings of rejection and being unwanted. And I I really encourage you all to do the same. My second suggestion. Is when you find yourself in a sticky situation that triggers your character flaw, allow yourself to be guided by God's majesty. As a caveat, I know talk about kings and queens and lords kind of brings up some of the patriarchy, but let's just like look at it from the spirit of what the Bible I think is trying to say. I'm really struck by the story of Isaiah and how many times Isaiah refers to really incredible and majestic feats of God's character as a vehicle to remind us that we can have hope in what God is and who God is and we can trust that God. I think sometimes it's really helpful to, you know, um, refer to God as Emmanuel, God with us, standing right next to us and he's in it with us. But I think also sometimes it's helpful to remember the God who is high and exalted above everything, who is not stuck in the junk going on in our lives. The God who is everlasting, recalling his ability to create something out of nothing, remembering that he can turn mountains upside down and valleys right side up. The one who is unlimited in energy, who does not get tired or fatigued. Maybe sometimes if we remember God that way, we would be encouraged to turn towards that God when whatever we've we've identified that we need to turn to, as opposed to that thing we always do that really isn't bringing life to you. And my last suggestion is as we push into trusting God and to have hope in God as we pray together this season, I would encourage you to remember that a life of hope is usually one of painful transformation. The verses read, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. For you to have hope, you really have to be willing to transform. Whatever it is that you're praying for, I think we're all being challenged to have hope that it could change. And I say challenge because if you're really asking for something that you can't do for yourself, you're probably done all that you could do. You're probably exhausted, tired, but the challenge of hope is to let go of all of that and surrender to something that is greater than you. I find the comparison to the eagle really powerful here to help us understand what it means, what kind of challenge it is when you choose to have hope. Eagles go through this process called molting, where they renew their feathers. And actually, all birds go through this process from what I learned when I was preparing for this. Um, But eagles are special because they have the longest lifespan of any bird. They also molt later in life than other birds do. And if they survive the molting process, Yes, if they survive, because they could die, because it's that dangerous for you to molt. And uh, they could actually then increase their life significantly if they survive. But what they have to do is they have to go way up and protect themselves in the nest so that they can be able to be protected because their leaves are all, I'm sorry, not leaves, feathers (laughs) are coming off of them. But once they get through that, they're typically stronger than they were in their younger age. Having hope in this analogy is literally a matter of life and death for these birds. And I think it's also similar for us, too. Our willingness to have hope can either bring more abundant life into our lives, or we could choose not to go through the process at all. God doesn't force us to do either of them. But God does show us his willingness to go through it as well through the story of the incarnate God, Jesus. Everything we naturally run away from, Jesus ran towards it. And I don't think it was just because Jesus loved us, but I think it was also because Jesus wanted to be a reminder of us, to inspire us that living in hope, we can endure much more than we ever could, so that we can then bring new life out of stuff that looks like it's about to die. That hope can increase our lives significantly. It could be like, you know, something coming out of a tree stump, like the Israelites in this particular story, or it could just be out of whatever place of hopelessness or helplessness that you may be having in your life today. So as we end, I would invite you guys to close your eyes, or if you don't feel comfortable doing that, just like take an attitude of prayer and just receive, as I'm going to read this last section of Isaiah for you all about the picture of Jesus, this man. Take a deep breath and just relax. And I hope that you receive what these ancient words might have to say to you. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, I just thank you that you love us so much. Thank you that you are our living hope. Thank you that you remind us that we can have hope. And I pray that you just help us all during this season to choose more of that and less of the other. In Jesus' name, amen.